Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Hey, y'all. Welcome back. I am so excited about this week's episode. I had such an amazing treat this week, and I hope it's a treat for you, too. So several years ago, I read this article on Huffington Post about this art project called White Man in My Pocket. Black woman lives in Brooklyn. She literally carries this little white man and all his associated privilege in her pocket to like give her extra huevos to go out into the world when she needs to get shit done. So this is about 2015. And from that Huffington Post article, I came up with the idea of embracing my inner Susan. She is my inner white woman. She's a brunette. She only wears yoga pants. She always has a cup of good coffee in her hand. In my encounters in this world, I have never met anyone who has a greater sense of entitlement and to have their needs met than a white woman who fits this description. Why am I telling you this? For the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about the situation in Virginia where the governor and the attorney general have both admitted to wearing blackface. And then people digging into all these yearbooks around the country from the 70s and 80s and tons of blackface photos. I'm like, this is y'all's pastime. This is how you party. But I was talking about all this on Facebook. In addition, the fashion houses, uh, Montclair, Prada, Gucci are all in the middle of blackface scandals right now. I had a lot of questions about blackface and not so much its history because you can find the history of it pretty easily online. I was asking why now, especially with the fashion houses, like we're in 2018, 2019, where this imagery is being sold. And I was just, I was so confused. And I wondered, where did it come from? I was trying to find out if there was some correlation to, what's the word I want to use? The success of Black people, whereas Black people advance in some way, and then you get the counter reaction of racist imagery to sort of take a little shine off, you might say, of Black advancement. My theory was was quickly debunked once I talked to a couple academics, experts in in Black cultural spaces. All of them, I've talked to maybe like three or four people so far, but all of them have pointed out and they were like, oh no, like Blackface is embedded in the fabric of American culture. The first feature film, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, not to be confused with Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation about Nat Turner, but literally the first feature film features white men in blackface. That was a hit film. It set the standard for for the film industry. It was screened at the White House. The very first sound film, The Jazz Singer, features white guy in blackface. The American film industry, which, you know, sends these visuals, not just to Americans, but all over the world. The basis of it is blackface. The other thing that that everyone was very mindful to point out to me is that when you speak about blackface, make sure that you're not just speaking about America because it's done worldwide. When these companies that are based in other countries, often Europe, are like, oh, we didn't know we had no concept. We don't, we're, it's not our culture, so we don't know what offends you. They absolutely do because American culture is exported everywhere in the same way that Anytime you leave the country, you can hear the exact same music that's played on the radio in America, wherever else you are in the world. Places where the majority of the population doesn't speak English very well, 
you'll still hear the songs on the radio there that you hear in America and at about the same time. When, when I was in Bali, all they played was hip hop. And if they didn't play like the original version of it, they played white people or Balinese people on acoustic guitars singing hip hop. I'm in the pool eating breakfast in Bali because pool breakfast is a thing. And I'm not really listening to the music. I'm just sort of like in my own world. But I tune in for a moment and it was an acoustic guitar version of Hey Ya by Andre 3000. And then I have another one. There's what's that girl is a real cloud pleaser. What's the song? Black Beatles. Same thing. White, two white girls on acoustic guitar singing Black Beatles. It was the craziest thing. But I make that point to say that all parts of American entertainment and American culture are heavily exported. And that's not just something that started in 2018. That started at the very beginning of mass pop culture. So our music, our films, our racism, because that's a part of the culture, gets exported as well. And it's always so weird to me how I can go anywhere in the world and catch an American film. I have to go to an independent theater here to catch it. You're not going to catch a foreign film unless it's a really, really big film at the AMC in America. We don't let other people's culture infiltrate because that's really what it is, infiltrating our culture the same way others allow us to. That context is important for the discussion that I want to have today. And it's a discussion because I had the wonderful privilege of interviewing the woman that I spoke about who created the white man in her pocket. I know I'm all over the place right now. Stay with me. I was talking about blackface on my Facebook page. I wanted to reach out to some experts to get more insight for a podcast episode that I'm working on. She is one of the people that reached out and she introduces herself as, hey, I've got a background. I can talk about black cultural studies all day long. I've got an MFA just in case it matters, but I would love to talk to you. And she was like, also, and she was like, also, hashtag white man in my pocket. And I was like, oh, the white man in my pocket sounds so familiar. I go look up the piece because I want to send it to this woman because I want her to know that I also read the same article. So I go find the article on HuffPost and I'm skimming it real quick because I haven't read it in a while. And the woman who did it is the woman who sent me the DM. And so I get super excited because I love when a friend in my head also thinks that I'm a friend in their head. So let me give you a little background on Kenya before we queue up. Kenya Robinson, she was born in Germany, raised in Gainesville, Florida. She's an American multimedia artist whose work includes performance, sculpture, and installation. Robinson's work depicts themes of privilege and consumerism, exploring perceptions of gender, race, and ability. Combining a variety of audiovisual elements and live performances, her work has been shown in many, many places, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Museum of Contemporary African Diasporan Arts, and it's in the Blacksonian. Better known to people outside of D.C. is the African-American Museum of History and Culture, i.e. the Black Smithsonian Museum that's on the mall. She has a headdress, which is exhibited on the fourth floor. So if you make it to the Blacksonian, you have to stop by and be like, oh, my God, I listened to the podcast with Kenya. Take a picture with it. She'd love that. She also earned her MFA in sculpture from the School of Art at Yale University in 2013. So Kenya is with me for the whole show this week. And we're talking about privilege and power, blackface and race, symbols, and finally, the whitewashing 
of Motown at the Grammys. I'm glad you've been with me this far, and hopefully you'll keep going on this amazing ride. Hi, Kenya. How are you? I'm so excited to talk to you. Because when you reached out to me, like I explained in in our back and forth in our DMs, like Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, she mentioned white man in her pocket because I remember there was this article. Oh, shit. It's the same girl. It happened to me in 2008 when I was watching the the acceptance speech of of uh, forever President Barack Obama. I was by myself. I was in my studio, my first studio ever. I was feeling kind of alone, but I also was feeling excited about this moment. But I realized that a significant part of that feeling was shame because I didn't think it was going to happen. Mm. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm an artist or I'm, I'm trying to be an artist. And so my imagination is my stock in trade. So if that's being somehow stunted by the ism, I've got to do something active to combat that. And so that's when I started investigating whiteness as as a property as a lucrative property that I could, you know, spend like cash. For people who are just hearing of this for the first time, like you literally carried or carry a small figurine of a white man in a business suit in your yeah. pocket. Yeah, with a briefcase. With a briefcase. Because he's, he's, a, he's a big time businessman. Like he's about that oh, yeah. life. He's an executive. He's- Where did that idea come from? Like you, you were working at the Brooklyn Library and your boss at the time gave it to you? The Brooklyn Children's Museum. But yeah, she was kind of, she was asking me actually about my love life. She was teasing me and saying, you know, Kenny, you need to just find you a white man. I knew that there was something else going on because of the conversations that we had had previously. So I, I was already looking for, for the trick. And she says, you know what, as a matter of fact, I have one. Would you like to meet him? And I was like, yes, I would, Juliet Gray. I would love to meet him. <laughs> She pulls out this figurine that actually comes in a set of about, I think, six figures, and they call them pretend professionals. And it's a part of a designation of play for early childhood called dramatic play, where you put yourself in the position of the figure. At that time, I think um, Steve Martin had put his foot in his mouth about something in an Italian restaurant. And what's the woman that cooks with all the butter? Paula Deen. Paula Deen. I think it was on the heels of the senator that, you know, said, you know, disrespected the president of the United States by calling him a liar Mm. and all this stuff. So that was the that was the landscape of of getting this 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 figure. And I was like, y'all have been getting out of pop. So it was, you know, really just this visual joke that I was retelling myself via Instagram, but then it, it evolved. When you put the white man in your pocket, what are you channeling? I'm channeling the things that you mentioned in, in your message, which is, you know, mediocrity as a superpower. I've been thinking of myself as excellent for as long as I can remember, because it was an expectation of my family life. And I saw that that oftentimes made me a target. I wanted to not look at that mediocrity as a personal affront to me, but just as a tool. I also wanted to um, embrace my own agency. 
because there oftentimes would be instances where I needed to get a cosign that wasn't really necessary. And white executives don't ask anybody any other questions. There's this um, clip that I got from, I think it was, I don't know what the, the context of this this clip was, but it was um, W speaking. And it was like, you know, I don't have to explain myself. I mean, he, he actually says this, mm-hmm. like you need to explain to me, but I don't need to explain my actions to you. And, I, and that that also, um, you know, to play around with that, because I have I have the tool of being collaborative, but sometimes you have to build up other skills to be able to maneuver again within the structure. And then the third most kind of most important thing that um, the the figure itself identified for me is the fact that white male heteronormative supremacy doesn't work because white people or even white men or even white heteronormative men believe it. It works because all of us believe it a little bit. You know, whiteness, you know, uh, like globally is is a minority. You can't be the only one that subscribes to it. You need to present it in such a way that you have agents that are in spaces where you're not or you don't deign to be. And so because it was small, it made a physical talisman of that notion and that I could actually perform in a different kind of way. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, that was like, like the idea of I mean, people always say, like, take your power back, but also take someone else's power because, it's you know, it's all mystical and magical anyway. It's a social construction. So, yep. like, if you can adopt it, I can, too. And so I think yep. I will. Race is a performance of ignorance. It ends up uh, revealing itself in different ways, depending on, like, where you you fit. White people have to be ignorant of the effects of their actions, for example, and I'm saying whiteness in terms of the construct, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with phenotype. And black people oftentimes are performing ignorance as, you know, not realizing their own power. It's so funny um, how this symbology is enacted in real life. We think about enslavement, for example, and most, the figure that most pops up in people's mind is that of you know, honestly, I think the buck, quote unquote, the the big black man, but the man was not the central um, central part of of the economic system of slavery. It was the black woman. That's the only way that you could get more mm-hmm. was through her. The multiplier. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so to to recognize that that power hasn't actually gone away. I mean, if you want to sell something. You have to have it co-signed by a black woman. That is just the honest truth. It makes you do a double take. If you even hear her voice, you're like, oh, what is that? Automatically trustworthy. It's been, I guess, a pursuit of mine because I came to this planet in this form. It's like, and in this country in particular, it's like, whoa, okay, how powerful am I? Let me investigate the edges of that. In terms of power, one of my personal issues that I, that I you know take a lot of time sorting out is the fear of my own power. What if I unleash to do all the things that I 
say that I want to do, instead of thinking about like all the excellence that I can achieve, I always think about like what could go wrong or what is the the downside of it. And I think that applies to a lot of people in the sense that one, they're not told that they have power. And two, when you get to I was actually say a certain age. I was going to say a certain life point, but I think you have to live a little bit and see enough yes. where you get yes. to a certain point where you're or to a certain age where you're just like, oh, no, I've been deluding myself and playing small yes. all along. But yes. what happens if I step up? What if I go full throttle? But then what does that look like? Because, so I'm kind of navigating in waters that I don't know. I think that a big turning point is losing a parent. Mm. And mine happened to be my mother, which is like, you know, it's kind of like this life force. Your relationship doesn't end. It changes so dramatically that it changes your life. I am in this space of, okay, how do I use the darkness of the unknown, not as a space of fear, but the possibility of creation? Truly, I I felt those feelings and continue to feel them, but, you know, it's like diminishing Every time I practice it, even even reaching out to you was like, you know, it's like, well, you know, because because you're you know, you were very specific, you know, if you have the range and it's like me, me who has been actually studying this for it. I had to like double dutch that thing. I was like, girl, you know how to do it. You know how to speak about this emotionally, intelligently, historically, social like you got it. Why not? But there was there was a measure of fear and even reaching out. The thing that she's talking about reaching out about is a discussion about blackface that started on <laughs> Facebook. Um, but we'll get to that. We've just got so much more terrain to cover. Yeah, yes. um, this whole podcast is a deep fear of mine. Although I've had a blog, I've written two books, I've had YouTube videos, like I've I've been on countless, you know, talking head expert CNN type of stuff. I get it now. Like, but it's just <laughs> it's just in my head. I was just like, oh, I really don't have anything that anybody wants to hear about. We have been taught to be afraid of the dark. We have been taught to be afraid of the unknown. A part of that is instinctual. We want to be able to kind of see the pathway before we embark. And and we're also um, encouraged to think very linear, linearly. Life doesn't actually work like that. There's something powerful in that too. One of the things that I learned, a, a kind of a phrase that evolved out of the white man in my pocket project was privilege as plastic material. You're taught in, in, in fine art that there's like the plastic arts, that thing that, you know, you can use this material and it can tra- be transformed into something else like clay before, you know, there's, there's clay slip. That's basically like a liquid. Then there's, you know, clay that you can mold, but when you fire it, it becomes something else. But the element of what you use to do it is consistent and you can, you can transform it in any way that you wish. There's a privilege in knowing that even the most devastating of our life experiences can often be transformed into something entirely different. One of the things that I started doing when I'm like embracing Susan is not mm-hmm. just what would Susan do, but what would Susan say? Yes. So yes. I was traveling in L.A. I was out there for a couple of weeks. I stayed off the grid, stayed like up in Sherman Oaks or something like a mm-hmm. regular L.A. neighborhood parked at this place. It was very it was a very close parking spot. So I made it extra careful not to ding the car of the person next to me. 
So the next morning I come out, there's a note on my car where the person is accusing me of dinging their car, which I did absolutely not do. And it was very like, you know, I knew this was going to happen. I hate that this person has an Airbnb. Please be more mindful of the space around you. And it was just very white woman, passive aggressive. Like I could read the language and know exactly who I was talking to. It was a small building. I, I'd run into somebody else as I was going into the apartment. You know, word spreads quickly. And I was like, I wonder if she knew I was a black girl. She, she did. She did. Of course she did. Um, so I responded to her in Susan's language. Because me, I would be like, are you fucking kidding me? So I yep. was like, this message is very hurtful and triggering. I feel afraid and unsafe with you leaving this message on my car. It makes it difficult for me to drive comfortably. Center my safety, my comfort, like all of all of Susan's language. I put all of this into a letter and I these are things I would never say in my normal Demetria life. I folded it very nicely and put it in her windshield wiper. And the next morning I came out and I just knew I was going to see another fired up note. And then I'm going to have to like call the Airbnb lady and be like, hey, me and your neighbor going at it. No note. Nothing. I was there for another eight days. Not a peep, not a word. And I was like, oh, yeah, this this I'm uncomfortable. I feel triggered. I feel I'm afraid. You're like, I'm scared. Like they're like, oh, this chick might be us. Let me leave her be. (laughs) Basically, that's how I navigate the the art world. (laughs) My work is so provocative. You know, it gets it gets white people in a, a real tizzy. You know, I've even had to um, basically son a senior citizen. One of my shows, I casted the white man in my pocket as chalk and you could write stuff and it triggered this audio. It was a whole thing. This white woman comes up to me. She's got to be 65 plus and she starts to cry because she's so, you know, basically the mirror is so accurate that she and I said you know what I really I think that it's it's racist for you mm. to impose your emotional state on a stranger when we when I'm a professional in this space basically it was a nice way for me to say shut it up I'm not going to be your caretaker in this moment I've done my job I'm doing my job and that does not include coddling you but I'm saying it in such a way that it's an affront against me. And that is where you can understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. It's so important to meet people with the language that they use or to defy their expectation. Like, I think people expect me as a black woman so often if something goes wrong to automatically go from zero, zero to 60, which I can. I don't mm-hmm. have to. I can. Mm-hmm. But it's like mm-hmm. people are shocked. When I come yes. back with my inner Susan. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's very mm-hmm. effective. What is it, it like in general being a black woman in the art world? Is it like being a black woman in any other white space? Yeah, but you know what? It's more extreme because I came to it rather late. So I had already had a, um, a corporate background. I worked in fashion and I learned a lot of things that are exacerbated, like at, in corporate life, that are exacerbated in the art world. The people that you find yourself in close connection to are very, very wealthy. Mm. Like they're not got a good job with a nice 401k, like rich. I'm talking about really, 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 really wealthy. Like, you know, 
you meet all these people that have had money for generations and they've had um, a way of understanding you that's influenced by this. If you want to be viable in the marketplace, you have to give the collectors what they want. What ends up happening is that there are all these um, opportunities to ghettoize you if you're not doing what they want, which is what they mostly want is um, figurative, black figurative work. They want an excuse to basically look and inspect black people unabashed. And they're able to launder it, this impulse through um, their connection with the artist. I think this ties into our conversation, which our initial conversation, which was about blackface and mm-hmm. what you're describing. The, the first question that pops in my head is why are white people so obsessed with us? What you're describing oh. is like fetishizing yes. this part of this, but this only very specific part, this base yes. part of blackness. I have, I have thoughts. The reason why um, white people are so fascinated by melanin is because it is extremely valuable. It's very, 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 very valuable. And it's most valuable to them because it is a thing that they do not possess. A part of their understanding of themselves or their construction of whiteness is based on property. Like, you know how um, you hear law students talking about how property is nine-tenths of law or whatever. It's basically everything. Mm-hmm. Well, whiteness is a property. There's actually a, a paper um, called Whiteness as Property. I, her name just flew out of my head. But she is, you know, in um, Harvard Law Review. Essentially, that is how race is configured is through a legal category. I don't think that race or gender, I mean, they call it sex on a birth certificate, but we're really talking about gender. Mm -hmm. We're talking about pink and blue. I don't think it should be a legal category because think about it. If, If race or gender were not a legal category, then we would not have the issue of same, quote unquote, same sex marriages because it would be the union between two humans. Or we wouldn't have, what is it, miscegenation? Is that, is, I always... The interracial? Yeah, yes. like there, there would have been no issue about that. But that is how whiteness is conferred, is through its existence as a legal category. But that's one thing that it cannot possess. That's why whiteness is constructed as an exclusionary practice. That inability to possess it fuels the obsession. Is that how you end up with, say, blackface? Like, that's your your way of of possessing it, of owning it, of having this thing temporarily? That's, yes. And there's also, I think that the part that we, we deny in our modern, contemporary, quote-unquote, first world life is tribalism as a human quality of societies. There's always a ritual associated with it. I mean, we there's no actual reason for the justices to all wear black robes. 
except to like have a visual ritual of this. I had a friend who his dad, I can't remember which Maisel it was, but one of the Maisel brothers um, was his father. And his mother was really, came from a very wealthy family in, I think, Pittsburgh. And every year for like ever, this um, country club, golf they would have a golf classic where everyone, everyone would dress in blackface. And this is in, the, the time we were having this conversation was like maybe 2010. Blackface is too strong of a symbol. Like Mickey is a minstrel. Wait, what? Minstrel C is the nexus of all popular American culture. So, of course, that figure is going to utilize those symbols. And just because we don't use the word, the symbol endures. If you see a stop sign, it doesn't actually have to say, read the word stop. It maybe was a sign in 18, blah, 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 blah. But now it's morphed into a symbol. So whenever you see white, black, red, yellow, and a particular configuration, we recognize that as the symbol for like blackness subjugated. The symbol of blackness subjugated, it continues to be powerful. Unless it doesn't have any power, it's still going to be used. I wish you could see my face right now. I'm picturing Minnie and Mickey in their like classic outfits with like the red and white polka dot dress. Right. I want to say Mickey was like the black pants and like the red blazer and he's black and white. And there's like a, I want to say like a gold either yep. striping on the yep. the blazer or a gold bow tie or something. And I'm just, I'm having a total like, holy shit. And the gloves. And the gloves. Yes. Why does, you know. Why does the mouse have gloves? Yeah. It's, it's all of that. And we already know about Walt Disney. So it wouldn't be, it's not far-fetched. Just like Bugs Bunny is Br'er Rabbit. Those symbols are so powerful that the only way that they, the only way blackface will end is if it doesn't have any more power. Within the confines of, you know, whiteness, it's powerful because it invokes, again, subjugation of blackness, which in turn communicates, telegraphs power amongst themselves, for example. But then our reaction to it you know, the kind of emotional timber of it, that's a lot of powerful energy. And I often wonder what would happen if we just, like, we paid it dust. It's almost like a, you know, a a toddler acting out. I was talking to a professor from Wayne State University last night. Peter Boykin is the professor I was speaking with. He was pointing out that it can never really go away because it's the... It's so embedded in pop culture. If you have something that's so ingrained in the culture that way, like, how do you get rid of it? Can you? Symbols are based on on emotion. Like, you have to feel something. Like, race is not a real thing. It's totally made up. 
So you have to have emotion as a like a central part of how it gets communicated. I can't think of any way to like end it as a practice if we feed it emotion. Pissing black people off with blackface is part of the ritual of it. Yes. So like we've done it, we bonded with each other to be like, oh, look how superior we are in relation to each other. Then we put it out there and black people are offended and then it reaffirms. That's crazy. Just because it's crazy doesn't mean that it's not true. Okay, so everyone does stupid things, right? Things that they shouldn't be doing. People take pictures of them in the 80s. You didn't know it was going to end up on social media because it didn't exist yet. But my idea was like, how do you, you do the stupid thing you take a picture of the stupid thing and then you put the thing in the yearbook so everyone can see the stupid thing and it's preserved for eternity. And I was like, did none of these people have ambitions? I'm like, why would you document this? But that exactly explains why. Like you're documenting it for the reaction. Exactly. Exactly. The taboo of it is what's powerful. The fact that you can do it, not to equate in any way, but it's why criminals keep trophies the same same mindset like i was mentioning before that that race is a performance of ignorance that it makes you deny the wisdom of your own lived experience well let me ask you this i wanted to pivot wanted to, to, to fashion you mentioned you had a fashion background gucci prada montclair have been in the news lately for <laughs> fashion that blatantly features blackface. Is it deliberate? Yes. Why? I'm going to come at it from two points of view. One as a, like, working in the business of fashion, and two, working in the, like, the design aspect of fashion. Because I, I did, I was on both sides. So one is that it, that, whatever pieces are designed that are released now are a year and a half in development. It's even more if you're talking about, you know, designer, even their ready to wear collections. The sourcing of all the cashmere and everything, it just takes time to do that. It's had this life from its design to production. It has to be deliberate because race is a performance of ignorance, the company line will be that we didn't know. On the designer side, you are like trained. I mean, I didn't even go to like a fancy design school. I went to Los Angeles Trade Technical College. One of the, the requirements is a history of fashion class. You learn about the, the color palettes. You learn what those mean. And, and also you exist in the world. And if you're a designer, you're always looking for those patterns. You're always looking for those patterns. The other part is that, you know, there's always a, um, like when you are shipping out orders, right? You, you know, you work with a boutique or, or you um, work with, with a, a department store or whatever, negotiating the price on a shipment Basically, there's like sneaky ways to make or lose money because you're always going to have something that people aren't going to like. 
right? You're always going to have something that just doesn't sell. It doesn't move for whatever reason. You just don't hit on the right, the nail on the head. You still have to like utilize however many bales of cotton or, or um, cashmere or whatever. So you're going to have to include that to, you know, the, the pack, fact that you're going to have to heavily discount it anyway in how you're even designing it. So if you can get more mileage out of something that's going to be a throwaway anyway, because now you're getting all these clicks on your website, it's like more lucrative to have a quote unquote planned scandal than to be conscientious of the design. I also think too, people are buying it. The controversy is part of it, but I also think that in the same way that people pay thousands for yes. menstrual artifacts, yes, I think that a Montclair jacket or a Gucci sweat, a turtleneck sweater that's that's invoking blackface, I think somebody's gladly paying for it. It's going somewhere. Oh yeah, and they're definitely wearing it on you know in veil because they might not see any other black people, so it mm. doesn't even matter. Or a lot of these brands are European and right. I often think that in America we tend to think of I almost tend to think of racism as an American concept or blackface as an American <clears throat> concept and it's totally not. I was in Argentina summer last year and went to their version of like Brooklyn Flea on the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a place selling dolls, but there's tons of blackface dolls. I was like, we're teaching the children to be racist. Okay, I guess you got to start somewhere. When I was in Mexico the beginning of last year, I'm taking a tour of like some beautiful home. I would probably say from like the early, like whatever their version of the Gilded Ages. So like 19 teens or so. Mm-hmm. And the the madam of the home in her her perfume bottles, her lipsticks, her makeups, um, the tops of the, the perfume bottles, instead of being like something beautiful, sparkly and crystal, was... A, a black face figurine like so it pops up in all these different places amsterdam like they're um yes. what's their Swart Pete. yes so like we see blackface in all these these different places around the world and so when the companies say that you know like oh it's we didn't know we didn't know and it's like well no it's in your culture too it's not just in ours the the, the company line is that oh we haven't seen it's like that's not true yeah i don't know like i i am attempting, you know, in my own professional life to be aware that these kinds of feelings are like the hum of a refrigerator. I forget often, so many times, I mean, I'm getting a little bit better because it's so absurd that I have to enter these interactions with the mindset of, okay, like, I cannot assume that they think that I am capable. It's clarified that I am, in fact, probably overqualified. Mm-hmm. But I can't use that as the rubric because the performance of ignorance is too central to their identity. Yeah. That's a concept that I've been trying to wrap my head around for years, and you just put it so succinctly. I've got one more question for you. Did you watch the Grammys? I did. What did you think of the Motown performance? (laughs) I stopped short of calling it whitewashing, but I really kind of feel like that's what it was. 
it's Motown, which is it's like, you know, like there are certain things that are like really, really, really black. And Motown is like one of them. People keep saying, but Tina Marie and I was like 99.9% of the performers were black. Like, stop it. I think that the show, the entire show could have been produced better, but that's just me being, you know, like, like a uh, critical, but the Motown piece, like to have, Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson and the fact that he co-signed that was just like, what are like, there are so many tremendous performers known, not like rising all that, that could have done a much, well, put on a much better show. It's like the quality of the voice is not in any way. It has no connection with the ethos of, of Motown. Motown. I'm like, she's not a soul singer. No. And Motown, even though it was carefully produced pop with the intention of crossing over, was still very much like a black sound. Like the Temptations is a black sound. You know, the Marvelettes is a black sound. I love Jennifer Lopez. Like I really enjoy her as a performer. And I think if that was a part of her Vegas show where she's doing some sort of you know, genre hopping to, you know, pay homage to different art forms. Like, I get it. Totally. But I was, like, honoring the 60th anniversary of Motown mm-hmm. while centering mm-hmm. a non-Black Latina. Mm-hmm. It, just, mm-hmm. it was just weird. It's interesting because I looked at her, her, her outfit on the red carpet and I'm like, Beyonce much? I'm trying to figure out, like, oh, ye of, like, red carpet slayage. She's not a swagger jacker, but like, I just, I thought that that was strange. I'm like, is she trying to gear up for this performance by, you know, dressing black? I, I don't know. I, I don't, don't know. I, I don't even know what makes, made her say yes, except for the, the entitlement that is certainly a part of her identity. I mean, I think she wanted to put on a show. And as far as just, you know, you take it out of context, like it was a good performance. And the other thing, too, um, that I don't think people are talking about enough is Motown, great musical sound, enduring, you know, black company. Okay, but the image of Motown, like in addition to like wanting to go to cross over and make pop music, like Barry Gordy was very much like we will show black people at their best. So we're putting them in tailored suits and and beautiful gowns like you know at one point diana ross is considered one of the most glamorous women in the world like absolutely and then you have j-lo in her bodysuit shaking her ass to (sighs) jackson five songs and i'm like you know that's children's music right i think that of course i have my um conspiracy theory hat on i think that there is this this again this symbology because like that's what that's what's always going to endure Motown 25, I have visions of that. Michael Jackson goes up on his tiptoes. That was the logo of the company. You know, what is really being communicated by this choice? You know, I hope that the the, um, standalone special feels a lot different. The lineup looks good. It's it's much blacker. There are black people, (laughs) which is helpful. And people who could sing, sing, which I think is, you know, necessary. Which you have to say now, because before it would be a given, like, oh, it's Motown. Of course, there will be people who can sing, <laughs> sing. Maybe not. Maybe not. Now it's all in question. Oh, I don't want to question Motown, ever. Ever. Not again. <laughs> we, we, we did that. We don't need to do that again. 
yeah, we, we had that experiment. It failed miserably. Not that it failed. It just wasn't Motown. But it should have been. It should have been. On the Grammys, what is it? What do they call it? The most important night in music? Yes. Not so much. <laughs> Not so much. Well, that's all of my questions for this week. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, I, I just, you know, I've, I've, I've shared this in, in uh, like other platforms, but to be able to tell you um, <laughs> technology to technology that you're so inspiring, like your approach to interpersonal relationships, I mean, it has really informed the way I move in the world. It's given me a lot of confidence. Um, it's, it's made me really delve deep into like questioning my role in these things. So, I mean, your work is really a part of my art practice, you know, I mean, I've read a bell in Brooklyn and don't waste your pretty. I can't wait till life is not a dress rehearsal. So thank you for all of this being, being a unapologetically to, you know, not to harp on something, but to be an unapologetically black person in all the spaces that you are with elegance, grace and style. I really, and also with, a critical eye. I, I want I hope I get to see more of that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Where can um, listeners find you? Where can they follow your work? I love the gram at Kenya nine. And I also um, have my website, Kenya Robinson.com. Oh, you also, when you, when you go to the Smithsonian, you know, the Brown space in DC four floor, cultural expressions, you'll see one of my works. Commemorative headdress of her journey beyond heaven. It's in the hair section. Oh, that's so amazing. Congratulations to you. Kenya's amazing, right? When she initially reached out and I went scrolling through her Instagram and I was like, oh, we totally hang out in real life. And she lives in Brooklyn. You heard the sirens in the background for a little bit of the interview. What are you going to do? Like, that's the sound of New York. She has sirens. I have crickets. So that is our podcast for this week. As always, you can go to DemetriaLLucas.com and let me know your thoughts. There's also going to be a post on Instagram so you can share there if you'd like. As always, if you liked what you heard today, please leave me a kind review. If you don't have time for a review, just give me five stars. I like five stars. It makes me happy. That's it. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.